I'm Kate Daniels, and we have such an important discussion now about our life, the life of the planet, the kind of future we can still create. Spiritual life coach and author Yu Del Conzo is with us to inspire and to challenge. Yu Del Conzo, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us. It is definitely a privilege. Namaste, Kate. Namaste, you. What a beautiful way to begin and a way to set a tone, a peaceful tone, because we're talking about the conditions of our world, of our planet, that we are in some challenging times. But we always have to hold on to hope. And that's why I'm really welcoming your presence this morning, because you've been doing work around this for, well, it's been at least a couple of decades now, correct? Literally, it started in 77, 1977, as an advocation. Then it became my vocation in 93. And since 93, I've been doing it full time. And this full time work is really about transformation, is it not? Absolutely. That's what it's about. The transcendence of understanding that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And while that is really, I'm going to say, simple to embrace when we open our minds to it, it can be a challenge for persons who think that that's, oh, just, you know, a lot of um, oh something like woo-woo. How do you approach this to really, how do we approach it to help people to awaken and accept this and embrace it? Well, I've been at it for 40 years, and I, I still find it extremely challenging to make that separation because, again, like the great late Wayne Dyer used to say, if you're going to do this kind of work, you've got to anchor into that it's all paradoxical. I am a spiritual being, but it's quite a paradox to say that I'm having a human experience. So my primary reality is the essence of my soul, my beingness. But yet I still am in a physical body. So I feel and experience through that physical application. And transcendence is my understanding of keeping those two things in a priority basic. Like, for instance, I could be in the rain and completely experiencing rain, how cold it is, or if it's giving me a chill or something. And yet I never think of myself as rain. I have a car. But I never think I'm the car that I have or the car that I'm locomoting in. So it is quite paradoxical, and most people get lost in, even in the term paradox. And you know what? When I ask my clients, you know, even the ones that have been doing you know, meditation for many years, most people have a tough time because what it is is when two things appear to be self-contradicting but aren't. Because if you look at the earth plane, for every north is a south, the east there is a west. It's sad to say, but for every winner, there's a loser. So that on the earth plane, there is that paradoxical relationship. Our cells are polarized, and that's what helps us function on the earth plane. So when we're doing this kind of inner work, we have to take a look at the paradoxical relationship that always exists, the head of the coin and the tails of the coin. And so being open and desiring to really understand this and to come to embrace it and live it, if we do that, we're going to already be advancing to finding those answers for ourselves. Exactly. See, to me, 
after so many years. And again, I'm just a, another incarnate having a human experience, and I get lost in my dramas, and I get lost in the roles that I'm playing. And even the good roles, right? I play the role of a life coach. I play the role of a dad. I play the role of a husband. These are love identities. These are love roles. But even to get lost in a love identity is to go astray. So if I'm a doctor and I say, well, who are you? Well, I'm a doctor. Am I? Or is that what I do? See, there's a difference between what I am and what I do. And the bottom line of it is when people get to that level of understanding, they understand that we're all just one cell in a body called humanity. So most humans do not grok that, that interconnectedness, you know, and they see it as just woo-woo or a magical belief. But to save humanity, a point of critical mass must be reached where enough people are conscious that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, where we understand our interconnectedness, our oneness, and becoming consciously aware of the Earth's ecological time bomb. We have the know-how, we have the powers to help reverse this destructive process, which requires us to do a lot of transformational inner work on ourselves first. Because if we can't do it on us, one cell at a time, starting with my own, how am I going to teach it to someone else? I can't teach trigonometry if I don't understand it. So I know that from the bottom of my heart, the souls will read my book, The Awakening, A Transformational Love Story, that they'll grok these important lessons, just like the main characters Paul and Mark do in the book. And so here is the crux of our focus this morning, this transformation. We say we want to save the planet. We want to bring peace to the planet. But the critical thing is it begins with us, with each individual being. Exactly. See, again, reality is such right now, if we go all the way back in the early 90s, and you know, I was like Paul Revere saying all the things that are happening right now, and it's going to happen, and you really got to start doing this, and you know, watch what's going on, and the global warming. And I felt like Paul Revere, but mostly people would put their hands over their ears, and go, oh, it's too negative, don't tell me about it. And yet now you can put on any learning channel and see it. So there's no more awards at this point for predicting global catastrophes, only for doing the required personal work needed to build a transformed global society. Let's face it, we first have to transform our own negative thoughts. But I think it was Einstein who said we cannot transform our negative thoughts with the same thinking that created them. And so what I do, this is my 14th book but my first novel, and I wrote it so that people could understand how somebody could go through a transformational experience. And the book starts off with Mark and Paula experiencing what Ramdas would call the dark night of the soul, the place where the ego, for most human incarnates, go through, you know, suffering is inherent in physical life, and most of us have that dark night of the soul. Sometimes it's caused by cancer or a divorce or something crushes the ego so much that it just isn't in the way anymore. And that's not what happens in the book, because I don't want to ruin it, but in the first couple of chapters, that's what happens to these two individuals who happen, but there's no accidents in a perfectly evolving universe. They happen to meet each other, and then through the rest of the chapters of the book, they go through these transformational experiences where they go off on action adventures, you know, from this metaphysical exaggeration of where they could go in time and space. So we could set up parables that happen in the Buddhist Himalayan mountains where the Tibet is and things like that, so, you know, swimming around islands, snorkeling where there are sharks and things like that. So I get to use the parables of the experience I've had, because I've worked with over 25,000 session hours doing this work with people and learning, like, how do I explain this to somebody? Like paradox, right? Because it's so esoteric. And story, parables, as you were mentioning, 
that's the way to really cut through to our core. We relate to parables. We take them at the level that we're at, and then they make sense to us. Isn't that how it works? That's how Jesus taught me. (laughs) (laughs) Along with all the other great spiritual masters that have come back in Christ-like identifications to help us, you know, work on the enlightenment that we really are spiritual beings having a human experience. You see, what happens to me right now, though, Kate, is that when I'm seeing what's going on, there's such a polarization, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, Democrat or Republican, you know, coastal or the Central America, you know. And the thing of it is, is that we need to come together to form a spiritual evolution, not a warlike revolution. And in order to do that, that, at that place where you realize that you cannot no longer chop down one more tree in South America and not affect the quality of air in Alaska, that interconnectedness, again, going back to what I said before, each of us being one cell in a body called humanity. And the real good news here is that as we do this work, and we should desire to do this because it really is what's going to bring us peace and balance love in our life, in this human experience that we have. And then I think what's important to realize is that there's almost like a tipping point that happens because we want all of us should desire to do this, but it's it doesn't take every single being to do that. There's that tipping point kind of situation, right? Absolutely. The term I, the one I was taught and raised by is the word term critical mass which is very miraculous. It really is. It's, it's a scientific fact, but it almost comes across as woo-woo, magical, but it's not. See, the term critical mass is borrowed from nuclear physics, and in that field it refers to the amount of substance needed to sustain a chain reaction. Critical mass is a concept used in a lot of texts, including physics, dynamics, politics, public opinion, marketing, technology. But in my book, what we're referring to in The Awakening, A Transformational Love Story, is the critical mass as relates to a social dynamic. Like sociologists, right, refer to critical mass as a point in time when a large number of members within a group rapidly change their behavior. Their rate of change happens in such a way that it's unusual, and it sustains itself in self-propelling. And the miracle of it all, Kate, the miracle is, is that we only need about 10% of the planet to get it before this so-called miracle happens. And a lot of people are familiar with one they don't even realize, and that is when the Berlin Wall came down. Are you familiar with that as a critical mass example? Yes. Would you like me to explain it for your audience? Absolutely. So again, I've had 66 rotations around the sun. (laughs) So in other words, I'm 66 years old. And when I was a youngster in grammar school, you know, we thought for sure, you know, with President Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, that sooner or later we were going to go to war. And I can just think of the silliness of it, like they taught us to hide underneath our death, you know, things like that. But, you know, it was built into the paradigm, the, belief, the core belief system, that eventually we would probably have to go to war against Russia. So little did we think decades later that when enough Russians understood that the economic and political systems in the West were much more functional than how their communist system was working, that the wall came down without a shot being fired. That is a real good example of critical mass. There are many others, but the thing of it is is that 
it's not woo-woo. Like people hear it as, oh, that's too good to be true. But when I did my original research on it, Kate, it went back to the monkey study. It's called the hundredth monkey. Right. Uh, do you think your audience would be familiar with what the hundredth monkey is? Perhaps not. Would you like to explain it? Sure. So research scientists were studying a particular kind of monkey, and I don't really remember what the species was, but it was a monkey on a South Sea island. And, you know, they were studying it, and they found, and they were watching, and they were observing something that was odd. The monkeys would dig up the natural sweet potato, and they would start to bring it down to the ocean to clean them before eating them. And that was a unique way of doing it. And then they noticed that after a couple of years, when about someplace around 10% of this particular type of monkey started cleaning it, almost everybody did it instantly. And then what was more amazing, what their research in that summer, and compared it with other people in the same field at different places on the globe, thousands of miles away, that almost at that same instant, all the monkeys of the same species would clean their sweet potato in the ocean before eating it. Now, there's a real good example of where we are right now. When enough of us understand that we literally are interconnected in the same way that I have, I'm looking at my thumb and I have a cell in my thumb and I have a cell in my pinky. Now I'm rubbing my forehead and I have a cell in my forehead, but it's all interconnected in this body that I have. And when it's not, what do we call that? Cancer. And what's going on on the planet right now, that lack of interconnectedness, if you talk to most scientists, they say we're in crunch time right now. And if we don't make a pivot within 20 years, we don't know if we can stop it. And then it'll just be how do we survive with things like global warming, which is scary. Yes, indeed. I want to go back to the story of the 100th monkey for a moment to mention that actually when I had first heard this story, and it's probably been 20, 25 years ago, they mentioned that the monkeys that were going down to wash the sweet potatoes were the female monkeys. And, right. and it seems to me, and you mentioned that also when you're talking about critical mass and this change and what it's going to take who it's going to take or the kind of energy it'll take to move there, it seems very much in keeping with that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. Like I said before, I've logged in over 25,000 coaching hours, but what most people don't even grok is that 90-plus percent of the souls I work with doing this deep psycho-spiritual work were females. And I'll bring you back all the way to the beginning. So remember, let me go back to my history. So I'm 66 years old. I was raised in a blue-collar family in New York City, a couple of blocks from the low-income projects, by Italian immigrants who did not have an education, good people, put food on the table and you know, clothes on my back and that kind of thing. But it was a very rough and tumbling type of city-ish type of upbringing. So this is way at the beginning. And I was up on Route 46 up here in New Jersey, doing a session with a woman who had a Ph.D. in mental health. When, Kate, when the session was over, she very, and I mean very aggressively, I'm going to sweeten it up for the air, but what she said was, you don't know a damn thing about women's feelings. Now, Kate, when she said that to me, I was like, how dare, I didn't say this out loud, but my mind was going, how dare you? But immediately I felt crushed. Because I knew she was not only right about that I didn't understand women's feelings, I didn't understand my own feelings. So this prodded me to really start doing some research. 
And in the process of doing my research, it really saddened me to learn that, you know, being a male, I didn't look into it. That's what I found normal. But for millenniums, men have considered women to be mere chattel, a personal possession, like horses and cattle. And then it angered me that women, like my wife and daughter, I've been blessed to have one woman as a really good, solid partner with me, and my firstborn as a daughter, that they needed a constitutional amendment to vote, the woman's suffrage, 19th Amendment in 1920. And then I went, as I went in deeper, it got worse, not better. Then I found out that there was abusive laws that in some states, as North Carolina and Canada, as late as 1977, women could legally be sterilized without their permission and even sometimes without their awareness. And then, Kate, the final thing that floored me, I mean, I was floored, is when I found out about the rule of thumb law. So I had already heard, always heard that cliche, and I'm sure you did too, the rule of thumb. Do you know what it's anchored to? No. Oh, wait till you hear this one. You're not going to want to use that term so much anymore. At least I don't either. The rule of thumb was an actual legal law on the books that a man, a husband, could beat his wife with a stick as long as the stick wasn't thicker than his thumb. And that's when I wrote the article, I think it was like 2002, Womankind for the Rescue. And I, the stimulation was my own daughter and wife, and of course, women everywhere. And so if you think about it, look what's going on on the planet. But let's not look at humans. Let's look at animals. Let's put on an animal kingdom show. Let's take the lionesses. What do you see? You see the males fighting over the perpetuation of the species. That's all they're mostly concerned with. They're fighting, fighting, fighting. Who's going to be top dog? But what do you see with the females? They're cooperating in the raising and the rearing and the feeding of the clan, of the tribe. But if you look at all the animal kingdom. And that's why, not only from my personal work, but from just looking at the animal kingdom, if you go back 25, 35,000 years ago, women were gods. It was a female-based natural society. And now, by God's grace, it's starting to swing. I just want it to swing faster in that direction because that's what my personal experience is. So do I believe that right now swinging from a patriarchal to a matriarchal society can help us save the humans? I certainly do. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is quite a lot, you. And the thing is, is, sometimes when we are in the middle of that pot that's boiling on the stove, we can't really tell what's going on. But if we look back, then we're going to really see that emerging. And really, as we look at our world, at our country, and we see some of those changes in leadership occurring... I think we're beginning to see that kind of shift occurring, aren't yeah, we? it's definitely happening. Like when I was doing this decades ago, I always felt like I was the lone duck, and now I keep on running into more and more organizations. There's no doubt about it. But I think the real issue here, to me, the thing behind the thing behind the thing right now is that our problems that we're trying to overcome are systemic. And, you know, uh, most people don't even understand what the term means, but systemic just means what? Systems. So if we look at the systems that are in play, the financial and political systems, they don't no longer work for the masses. Look at the systemic disparities, because most of them are based on what? What the laws we put together, the foundation that our founders of the Constitution put together in 1776. So you take all these very progressive new Congress people, especially the females, and now they get in office. Well, to play the game the way it's set up, they're going to have to invest 300 of the 354 days a year to do what? just to raise the money, to play the games of the lobbyists. 
And that doesn't work. Gerrymandering doesn't work. Why? Because the boundaries of the electoral districts have put an unfair advantage from one party or another. That doesn't work. Population density. You know, is it fair that California gets two senators with 40 million people to represent them, and North Dakota doesn't even have a million people, and they get two senators? So this inequality is part of the balancing of the system. But how do we overcome that? Because if you watch what's going on in the gridlock, what's going on in Washington because of those pulling and pushing. And that's why I really believe in the transformational power of critical mass that my two main characters go through as they go through their spiritual transformation. Because the reality of it is, what really scares me, especially for my great-great-grandchildren that are not even born yet, what really scares me is at this point, Kate, is our technology has evolved faster than our humanity. Yes. And while that's a great tool for us, we really need to focus on ourselves as individuals, not be looking to those outside. It is that critical mass. And as you've shared these stories, the parables, and direct us to your most recent book, you, The Awakening, which is a transformation for us, I think all of that, if we could just really open our eyes, our hearts to this, we are going to be part of that critical mass and create that change happening, correct? Yeah, definitely, most definitely. Again, if we're going to create planetary transformation, and we're not going to do it in a warlike manner, you know, through a revolution, but more of a spiritual evolution, well, the key, again, is that first step is to demonstrate that we have the emotional courage to do our own inner work first. Again, if if I don't have the courage, let's say, to scuba dive to 50 feet deep, I can't help you scuba dive 50 feet deep. So again, it's still one soul at a time starting with mine. I've got to have the emotional courage to do that inner work, to build up my own self-empowerment, to help us transcend these systemic problems that are happening, these challenges. Again, to see that we're all each one cell in a body called humanity. This means that we're all interconnected, which is really what the core term namaste really means. In spirit, we're all one. And the most important thing to remember is that we cannot transform our dysfunctional systems without that same thinking that created them. We all have to clean the state, tabula rasa, our own minds. This is why I have faith that the souls who read my book, The Awakening, A Transformational Love Story, if they'll use the same techniques that the characters did in the book, the self-help methods that they go through, and the interesting story, the way it lays out, we can create that critical mass. Now, again, think about it. What is an awakened person? They're a warrior of the heart, a warrior to stand up. You know, I'm thinking of like an archangel Michael, you know, that kind of power, that kind of like willingness to stand up for what is right. Because the challenge of, of conscious souls who are spiritual warriors of the heart is to join in this spiritual evolution of love, to step up and do their own inner work so that our grandchildren's grandchildren can enjoy the same Mother Earth, that we're being challenged right now to save. Because if we don't do it now, as you've already mentioned, we are at that point. It's a real important decision, and it is a decision. We each have that opportunity to commit ourselves to that self-transformation to create that world, that planet that will be here for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Exactly. So, again, after writing 13 textbooks about this work and about training other practitioners how to do the work and 
taking these exercises that we've developed here, the U-Method exercises, which is an actual healing modality. It's probably the first stage in the spiritual modality. Like we have psychology, now we have spiritual life coaching, which is like a Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, Louise Hay, Marianne Williamson, all these great self-help leaders. And what I did was is I just collected all the exercises and we clinically measured which exercises would help the most amount of people get the most amount of improvement in the shortest period of time. But now decades later, we've done that. We've measured, and we know which ones are. So when we work with people, we're not therapists. What they are is teachers. You know, it's teaching Eckhart Tolle types of things, but teaching the way you would if you were a math teacher where you would give math homework. Only the exercises here that we do are emotional, psychological, and spiritual exercises. So what happens is since, since the divine energy is within all of us, and if we're not so identified with the roles that we're playing, the transcendence comes in the same way that you might walk in in second grade not knowing you know, arithmetic and walk out at the end of the second grade doing well in adding and subtracting, multiplying, and dividing. What I did when I wrote this book, I needed something to get out to the masses. So what I did was, Kate, I set it up so that the love story that are experienced by the two main characters is an actual love story. They do fall in love, and there's that level of the thing. Then the thing behind the thing is they go on these vision quest action adventures. So it brings some sort of livement, and then we spin off to other people within the stories, you know, so it just builds that way. And then what they do is what they receive, and which is all the scrolls at the back of the book, which is the life-altering lessons. So what the characters in the book go through is the traumas and life adventures that real people, who I actually coached over the last 25 years, Obviously, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, but the reality of it is it's based on real experiences. So I use their experience not only just to tell an entertaining story, but as the reader learns, they'll go through what these people went through, and it'll be easy for them to relate to. Even the trauma in the beginning of the book stems from real events that happen to real people. And it just begins with the law of attraction is set in motion by it's an unspeakable tragedy, which I mentioned earlier. Through the grief of this young man, has drawn a spiritual teacher. And together they discover the closest thing to heaven on earth, a consciously awakened spiritual relationship. And as each secret of transformation awakening is revealed, the reader is infused with newfound enthusiasm for living a more empowered life. After reading this book, it's almost impossible for anyone to view the world in quite the same way again, because as the main characters go through it, they're going through it too. And I've got to tell you, it was a wonderful experience, because I got to do it with my son, Dean. I'm a teacher. Writing is something that I need a lot of support and help with. And my son graduated as an English major. So my idea was, okay, so how can I get him to help me to do this and let this work sink deeper into his subconscious mind? So it was such a wonderful experience because I not only got to write it, but he brought in a lot of the novel element, you know, the storytelling element to these lessons that I had worked with with real people, which was really a wonderful thing to experience. And this is a way that each of us, regardless of where we are on this particular spectrum, we get the information we need for that point in time for our own empowerment. So what an amazing gift you are presenting to us, you. The Awakening, of course, we can purchase it at all of our favorite book sources, correct? Now, where it's located is on Amazon. To purchase it, uh, type in The Awakening, A Transformational Love Story, visit Amazon, or go to my uh, website, which is just my name, www.uh, as in Harry, U as in under Del Conzo, D-A-L-C-O-N-Z-O.com. 
and they'll, they'll open up with about a one-minute trailer, what the story is about, a video trailer, so on and so forth. And we were lucky enough that when we first opened up with uh, Amazon for the first couple of weeks there, we were the number one new bestseller. So it's picking on. There's enough people awaking now that really understand the value of it. And, Kate, if you want, I'd be more than glad to send you out a copy of the book. That's very kind and exciting to have that opportunity. Thank you, you. And thank you, though, for reaching through all this time. You know, it's all been a forward momentum and now really at a point that we're at critical mass to have this book, which I think is going to be what we need to really reach, hopefully, at just the right time or before. By God's grace, yes, because we really are in crunch time. 10,000 scientists can't all be wrong. <laughs> Indeed. But you know what it is, too? It's also about being optimistic. The optimism is so important because most people know at this point, and they're almost afraid to look at how dark, the doom and gloom of it all. And that's why just recently, it wasn't even 10 years ago, I wrote another article called The 21 Reasons to be Optimistic About Humanity's Futures. And that's really important because most people, if they don't believe that we really have a chance, well, then they won't get up and do anything. And there are just 21 reasons that most people don't even realize. So I'll just give you two. The first one on the list is we're better off now than any other time, Kate, in recorded history. Compared with 50 years ago, the average human now earns nearly three times as much money, eats one-third more calories, buries two-thirds fewer children, and can expect to live one-third longer. The second point of the 21 reasons is we have more access to human innovations now, even allowing for the many people who still live in abject poverty. Our generation has more access to calories, watts, horsepower, gigabytes, megahertz, food per acre, miles per gallon, and money. And, you know, when you finish reading the rest of these 21 reasons, you go, wow, I didn't know that, because only bad news sells newspapers. It's always the bad news news. When there is a lot of good things going on, there is a lot of organizations like Holistic Learning Center that really are doing the work that's necessary, and we're only one of thousands. And you are here with us this morning to bring that exciting, important good news to all the listeners here on the West Coast, but uh, wherever else because of our podcasts. So I am so grateful, you, that you have been with us this morning. It's just been such a gift. You're so welcome. We're all one soul at a time.